Hello and welcome to another episode of the Live Immediately podcast with Mike Campbell. Thank you so much for listening. This is where I have conversations with people who are living life on their own terms. We dive into those big moments that have pushed them through the fears and self-limiting beliefs that hold so many of us back. Now, the death of a parent would be life-altering at any stage of your life, but more so when it happens suddenly and you're in your adolescence. My guest today, Audrey Wanders, had the unfortunate experience of dealing with her father's death when she was only 15. The road definitely wasn't easy for Audrey, as she felt a lot of guilt. She would shut people out and she had to navigate the growing pains of youth without her father. But listening to Audrey's beautiful story, her father left her with so many gifts and helped shape her life from the inside. Audrey and I pack a lot into this conversation as we hold hands and jump into the deep end right from the beginning. We discuss growing in discomfort, the importance of reflection, minimalism, and asking that important question, does this add value to my life? Audrey's 31 days of nature challenge, micro adventures, that's a really cool thing I've just discovered in love, building habits around mental health, and putting passion before your paycheck. Probably one of the biggest little life gems that Audrey's father had instilled in her. Audrey is creating her path and walking on it daily, winding it around her passion of kids, nature, and living more with less. I hope you enjoy my beautiful conversation with Audrey Wonders. Hi, Audrey. How are you? I'm doing great, Mike. How are you doing? I'm very well. I'm very well indeed. It's early hours of the morning for you and it's late evening for me, but whereabouts in this beautiful world are you at the moment? Uh, I'm in Northern Virginia. It's in the United States, about an hour south of Washington, D.C. Nice. And so Virginia is a state, yeah? Yes. And is there, there's also, is it on the coast? Yes, it's yeah. on the East Coast, yeah. Got you. I have been to Virginia then. And is Richmond the capital? It is. It is. Okay, cool. I have been through your beautiful state. Not in, not in our last trip, but when Ingrid and I mm-hmm. went, we, uh, we did a road trip actually from Austin, Texas, all the way up to New York City back in about 2009 for about a month and um, yeah, made our way through Virginia. It was actually beautiful. That's great. Did you, um, did you spend your times in more rural or um, kind of on the west side of Virginia in the mountains or no, so we where were you in Virginia? Uh, we would have been on the coastal side from, from memory. We drove through coming from Kentucky, I believe, would have been kind of one of the stops prior to, um, to Virginia. Yeah, we kind of came up through the middle. But when we were in Virginia, we were actually on the coast. Okay. It's also a beautiful part of Virginia, yeah. But you're in the mountains, I'm gathering. Uh, no, actually, I'm I'm more kind of in a suburban area, uh, more in one of the we call it like a DC suburb. So the DC metro area is DC, some uh, suburbs in Maryland, and then in Northern Virginia. So I'm not too far away from the forest where I spend, where I would like to spend most of my time, but I'm still kind of in this suburban area. Oh, cool! But um, I know that today we're going to dive into. Uh, a bunch of topics and, and offline you have actually mentioned and said that I dive into the big questions quite early. So I thought we might as well do that on this podcast as well. 
But the yeah. te- the teenage years for everybody are, are quite difficult and challenging to to go through. But for you, even more so with the passing of your father. So, how did his death shape your life? You do like to ask big questions, Mike, and I kind of <laughs> love it. Um, so I could take this response in in so many different directions. Obviously, it's had a big impact on my life. Uh, but I, I start from the beginning, see where it goes. Um, my dad died when I was a freshman in high school. Uh, that was six days before my 15th birthday. Uh, it felt very sudden to me, not just because, you know, I was a teenager and it was my dad, but, you know, he fell ill and he was hospitalized one day and the next day he was gone. Uh, my parents weren't living together at the time, so I actually hadn't seen him in almost two weeks. Uh, my mom wouldn't let me see him in the hospital, and I do thank her for that, but his death felt unfair to me as a teenager, not just because it was my dad, uh, but because such a long time had passed since I'd seen him. And, you know, when someone dies we haven't seen in a while, it's easy to feel guilty that we haven't made an effort to reach out, spend more time with that person. Um, as a teenager, I didn't feel that sense of guilt so much, but I was left with this this kind of uh, deep-seated impermanence, like I could lose anyone at, at any time. And for a while, it felt like I did. Uh, my father's death seemed to trigger more deaths around me. By the time I was in my early 20s, I had, had, I had attended over half a dozen funerals for friends, for family, which just continued to ingrain this sense of impermanence. And I went through a period of time when I felt like everybody around me would eventually leave in one way or another. So I tried to protect myself from going through that pain again. I stopped myself from developing any kind of meaningful relationship with with others. And, you know, I thought that they would just end the relationship somehow by leaving in one way or another, just as I was ready to get my heart broken again. So I kind of shut people out in a way. Uh, But while I was protecting myself, I was also depriving myself, right? Depriving myself of of these meaningful relationships. So my sense of impermanence shifted into this kind of carpe diem mentality. And I got used to the fact that, you know, tomorrow isn't guaranteed. And I felt like, especially for me, tomorrow was not guaranteed. So I began throwing myself into relationships and experiences that would hopefully leave me with no regrets, And it may be part of this extreme personality I have, but I no longer take relationships lightly. So if you're in my life, you're in my life. And I'm not here to put off those relationships anymore for the someday or for the tomorrow that might not ever come around. Wow. And talk about a a deep question. You you definitely give a deep answer, which I I love just (laughs) as much. But like when when you speak about there about, you know, originally kind of shutting people out and and how did you make that that turn to start to accept people and and as you said to to not really put things off to tomorrow which is one of the things I absolutely love about living immediately but how did you kind of make that adjustment in your life I think uh, part of it was some experiences I had as a teenager I did have um, there was a guy I was dating and he was trying to push himself into my life you know, the more I kind of retreated and there were moments where I would have this conversation with him, like, I don't know how much I can give you because I am so afraid of this. Um, So he kind of pushed me into this uncomfortable zone where I really had to reanalyze what I really wanted out of my day to day. And then I remember in uh, college, I was talking to a friend and I was about to move from North Carolina to Virginia and she was about to move from one city to another. And she and I were great friends. 
Um, and I had kind of started letting people in and she made this comment to me that, you know, our friendship's going to essentially end soon. Right. Um, or at least it, it felt like it was going to end because there was going to be so much physical distance between us. And she made a comment of like, if we know it's going to end, then what's, what's the point, right? Why don't we just end it prematurely? And that really made me pause and reevaluate everything that I had been thinking since I was 15 years old. It's like, we don't live for that end moment because we don't know when that end moment is, right? So we had this great conversation and it really opened my eyes and turned me around to this idea of we kind of live in the middle. Like the end is always going to be more abrupt than we think it is. So living in the middle, living in these moments, living for the moment is really the point. So that's kind of how I, I re-evaluated how I was living my life. Yeah. And it's, it's so true then when you talk about that end moment. And I think often we are striving for that imaginary finishing line. Like once I cross that line, then this will happen. But that line, we never cross it. You know what I mean? It's just this imaginary yeah. point. And, but then sometimes I feel like people aren't even living in that middle moment. They're just not living in any moment they're living a couple of moments just ahead of them right but you also yeah and it's important right it's important to to think ahead right but you have to figure out your balance between thinking too far in the future versus living too much in the moment like where is that that balance that's going to give you the most fulfillment 100 and to be honest it's one of the biggest things that i personally struggle with like how do i live in the moment but then also kind of look after my future self in a way and, mm -hmm. and and like what is that point like you're right like where is that that happy no man's land that we can um we can kind of straddle that fence of of present and future but you also right. spoke about being afraid um of letting people in and i guess that being afraid is is fears in, in a way and how have you have you been able to kind of use that technique of how you got over about being afraid of letting people into your life about getting over other fears in your life? I mean, everything, I feel like we grow the most in discomfort, right? So the things that make you the most uncomfortable, those are probably where your really defining moments are going to come from. So that's kind of how I approached a lot of things in my life. Um, moving to a new state, uh, getting a new job, trying to, and I'm a very introverted person, which I know I've told you before. So, you know, building new relationships is also just difficult in general for me because I'm not the most sociable person. So it's, yes, it has kind of pushed me to embrace fear, but I think that was always a part of me as well. And it just kind of manifested in my social life after a while, after I realized, no, like these relationships are important. The things that I cannot control, those things that are fear-based are the most important. And do you know that while you're going through it? And like, same with like that growing through the discomfort. And I agree with that. Like for me, I sometimes, I don't really kind of assess my life. I do more so now, like as I'm going through it, but I, I will often look back and go, okay, that's the lesson I learned there and, and things like that. And, and kind of growing through that struggle. But are you aware when you are going through something difficult or when you are doing something fearful and, and you, you know that it is the best thing for you or that you do grow through that discomfort, are you aware of it 
as you're going through it? Most of the time, no. And I think that's true for most people is most of the time you have to rely on your hindsight to really show you what you went through and what you're supposed to learn from it. And that's where um, writing comes in for me because writing is very reflective. That's how I look at these moments in my life and say, oh, like that, what I pushed through there, well, the fear that I pushed through, the discomfort, this is what I got out of it. And this is how I can take that information and then use it to teach, uh, use it to inform the rest of my decisions or inform the rest of my, my actions, right? Yeah, it's so true that you bring up writing because when I started the Live Immediately blog, it was, and you know, we had just started our little family adventure and it was the thing that allowed me to kind of get those thoughts out of my head and onto paper and kind of put them, put them in a way that other people could read them and learn from them. But it was also a way for me to get them out into that kind of way and for me to learn myself. On that note, do you actually read through some of your old stuff and, and bring back some of those lessons? I do. And it's, it's funny. It's really hard to read your old writing in a way and to go back through things that you published and you say like, oh, I would change this, this and this. But that's just kind of surface level thinking. But going back and being able to really, in a way, relive those uncomfortable moments and relive those lessons, it's a great reminder to have your writing somewhere or to have conversations recorded, right? These interviews or, or something somewhere that's going to remind you of where you've been and where you've gone and kind of where you want to be. And that's really important for me to always keep those lessons in the forefront so that I don't lose sense of myself or where I'd like to be. And this might be a bit of a challenging question, but what, <laughs> what do you think some of those key lessons that you've learned are? Oh, well, definitely from my, my father is do what you love, follow your passion. Um, and I've written a lot about relationships and really living in the middle and living in the moment and appreciating the people around you because they're not going to be there forever. Like those are definitely the big lessons that I, those are the big themes, I guess, that I write about a lot. Um, also this idea of minimalism, right? So doing what you love and also making sure that what you surround yourself with actually serves a purpose and helps you find your passion, follow your passion, do what you love. Uh, so those are the kind of big lessons, the big takeaways that I have. I'm sure there are dozens other little ones, but those are the big ones that really drive my writing and drive my life. And for you, like I know that finding your passion is really hard for some people. How have you been able to articulate what you're passionate about? How have I been able to, like, like, how have I been able to find it? Yeah. You know, because I find that, like, a lot of people, like, you know, I just, I just don't know what I, I want to do. I know that there's something more out there, but I just don't know what it is. I don't know what I'm passionate about. Is there, are there any kind of little tricks or strategies that you've done where you've been able to find your passion? Or has it just been, I guess, life's journey? Definitely part of it is life's journey. But for me, writing or having these conversations, even if they're with myself, because I feel like writing in a way is me talking to myself um, or getting things out. Right. Um, but definitely writing as a way to serve as a reflection. And if writing doesn't work for you to find some way to reflect on things. Now, um, the minimalists, uh, Ryan Nicodemus and Joshua Fields Milburn, they have this 
brilliant question that I've attached to over the last several years of does this add value? Right. If you're going through like a decluttering process, even if it's uh, mental decluttering, right, that's how you find your passion. You have to go through this mental decluttering of sorts is if you can go through and say, does this add value? Does this action decision um, commodity, does this add value to my life? And once you kind of remove the excess and distill it down to just the essential, then I think that can really bring the passion to the forefront. It's like, oh, this is where I find meaning. This is where I find value and utility. And that can really be helpful in trying to figure out where your life should be going next. And you talk about learning through the struggle. It actually can be quite a struggle when you ask that question, especially until you kind of, I guess, cross that chasm in a way, because often you'll be looking at a lot of the things in your life and maybe some of the people and a lot of your actions and asking that question, does this add value and no will come up a lot. And that yeah. sometimes that's, that hurts to realize, wow, there's, there's a lot of non-value in my life. Did you ever go through elements of that? Oh, absolutely. And I think everyone, I th if they really bring that question to the forefront, they're going to find these things that don't add value. And it's, it can be really eye-opening and really disheartening in a way to realize that you have surrounded yourself with so many things that do not add value. So yes, it makes you uncomfortable and it's it can be heartbreaking in a way to have that realization. But I think, again, that's another opportunity for growth, for kind of figuring out where you want to go next. That's your reflection. And it's really uncomfortable to sit with yourself sometimes when you have those moments but I think it's also a really important piece to the puzzle, right? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're just mindlessly going through life and you're not really feeling fulfilled. Uh, but getting to fulfillment, and I'm not saying I'm there yet or there all the time, uh, but getting to that, that level of fulfillment, it, it takes some hardship. Mm. So it's necessary evil in a way. And I think too that, that necessary evil and that struggle – you do feel alive through it because you are feeling those, those raw emotions, whether that be sadness. And then once you finally get through it, that, that joy and that happiness. But when you are just kind of going through numbingly through the days or, or on default, you, you don't feel anything. Do you know what I mean? And for me, yeah. for me, that isn't living, but you spoke about minimalism and, and offline you've, you've mentioned to me that you rediscovered minimalism. So, what do you think were the elements of, of minimalism that you lost? And, and what was it that, that I guess brought you back to the philosophies of minimalism? Right. So the, uh, the biggest philosophy with minimalism that really resonates with me, I've, I've said already, is pursuing your passion. Right. And this all goes back to my father. So when you ask about my father and offline, you ask me, is it OK if I ask you about this? Of course it is, because everything kind of ties back to this moment in my life in a way. It was a very pivotal moment losing my father and it took years of reflection to figure out what he gave me and what purpose he served in my life. Uh, but one big one was always pursue your passion. He was a professional musician. Um, and he always promoted the idea of like your passion comes before your paycheck. So I grew up scoffing at the idea that I should ever look for a career based on the annual salary. Right. And so when you're a kid, right, I lost him when I was a teenager. Um, that is part fantasy in a way, because when you remove the fantasy aspect, you realize that financial security is 
not something to scoff at necessarily. Um, but I brought that notion into my adolescence, into my adulthood, which I think sums up the major aspect of minimalism is to clear out the excess to find and follow your passion. So that passion drove me, uh, that drove me more than any other was teaching, particularly just working and building relationships with kids, whatever that meant. So I went to traditional university route, earning my teaching license to teach in a public school. I was following my passion, right? I was, I didn't call myself a minimalist, but that was a, a way for me to clear out everything else to really hone in on that passion. But after I graduated, I couldn't find a job. And I had to work as a teaching assistant while I looked for a full-time job. And as a teaching assistant, I was making less than half of a first-year teacher, so I'm not sure if teacher salary is a hot topic in Australia, but teachers in the United States are incredibly underpaid. Um, and I wasn't even making a teacher salary. So as an assistant, I was technically in the area where I live. I was living under the poverty line. Uh, but I was working with kids, so passion before paycheck, right? And once I found a job as a teacher, my salary more than doubled. And even though it was a teacher salary, right, which we complain about a lot in the United States, I was making more than double what I was before. So the passion was there, but the sudden financial gain that sparked this slow, insidious lifestyle creep, oh, I was spending way beyond my means. I was going into debt. I felt like I was accumulating all this physical and mental clutter. And I didn't really call myself a minimalist until about a year ago, but I was losing sight of what my father had taught me as I was growing up about following your passion and your passion comes before your paycheck. So I knew I needed to get back to the basics of clearing out the excess, cultivating passions. And it's still a process and probably always will be, but my biggest draw into minimalism and what brought me back is that idea of passion over paycheck. And going through that time when the paycheck wasn't that great, because I know that the money thing is one of the big questions that a lot of people ask me about, about affordability. And I kind of answer it in a way of, well, when you understand that you don't need as much as you thought you did, you then don't have to spend as much money buying those things that you know that you don't need. And when you don't need to spend as much money, then you don't necessarily need that high paying job and you can kind of go for that job that is more passion focused as, as you were kind of talking about. And, and we get all we can get our time back and we might only have to work three days a week instead of five days a week. But going through that, that first hurdle of kind of struggling with money and financial security is a, is a big thing because I, I know that not being financially secure is often one of the big, I guess, argument starters in households. So for you, how, how did you kind of push through that hurdle or really get over that hurdle? Or was it just that you're, you were literally just driven by passion the whole way? Well, I, I agree that financial security is a major source of stress, especially when you're um, within like a household unit, if you're not just on your own. Um, I think it was fortunate in a way that I was on my own. Um, because it was just me making the decisions. Now, I kind of brought this sense of frugality of, you know, what I own, I need to take care of, because I can't just go out and replace it at the drop of a hat. Um, and what I 
do with my money needs to bring me the most value. So make like making below the poverty line in the area where I live, I had to become this incredibly frugal and mindful consumer uh, to support myself. Now, I did have a credit card because I was able to live paycheck to paycheck and I would be going to uh, farmer's markets for all of my produce and I was living on rice and beans for quite a while. Um, Whatever I did for entertainment, you know, books or, you know, spending time with friends, you know, a lot of that is either cheap or free. Um, I I figured out a way to have a little bit of frugality and, and more mindfulness in every aspect that concerned my finances. So I would... Um, sorry, finding that financial security was difficult when I was living below the poverty line, but it wasn't quite as difficult for me, I don't think, because I grew up with that sense of valuing what you own and not taking anything for granted. Mm. For me, my personal journey into minimalism and I guess mindfulness, it's that scenario of the the chicken and the egg. I don't I don't really know which one came first, or maybe they're one of the same. But for me, when I went through a, a huge purging process and you know, my family and I were purged over now about seventy percent of our belongings, creating that physical space really allowed that creation of mental space and with that mental space gave me that time to think and and really that thinking time is is mindfulness but how has minimalism and mindfulness infiltrated your daily life i think it goes back to that question of uh, does this add value and that question is probably like the biggest takeaway and it had this uh, reset effect so whether it's about something I would purchase, something I would want to do, or something I would like to engage with, I would ask myself, does this add value, right? And it's an interesting way to hit the reset button if I find myself in the middle of an impulsive or mindless decision that isn't serving me. So for me, I didn't, you know, clear the clutter and then kind of fall into this mindful way. It, it kind of happens simultaneously. And I think that minimalist and or minimalism and mindfulness are synonymous in a way. Uh, I'm definitely not taking, you know, other, you know, every act isn't always a mindful one. And I still make decisions that I wish I hadn't. But if I take a more holistic view of my daily actions, I feel like I am the best version of myself that I can be. Right. And that comes back to the minimalism and mindfulness and how those go hand in hand. It's really weird to say, by the way, to say that I feel like I'm the best version of myself. Um, but, you know, attending to conversations with friends, I do my best to be present with myself and others, to add value to others' lives. And I think minimalism and mindfulness, they just have to go hand in hand. And it is a chicken and egg scenario in a lot of ways. Yeah, I agree with you there. And I do apologize. I think that the the Skype might have cut out a little bit, but I don't think we missed out on too much there. But I completely agree with you, Audrey, when you talk about that you can still make decisions that might not be mindful decisions. If you look at it, it's kind of like looking at at like, like a graph. If we look at it at like every little inch of course, we're going to find these imperfections. But when we step back and go, hey, is is this year better than last year? Or is today better than yesterday? Have I improved this week over last week? 
then that's, you know, that's a positive. Do you know what I mean? If that's where we're learning and we're growing in those kind of increments, then for me, it's, it's happy days. And for me, that's growth. Yeah, you could definitely get yourself in trouble with getting too into minimalism and, and mindfulness if you are scrutinizing every single decision. But again, like looking back at the day or the week or the month or the year, if you take a holistic view, then you're going to be surprised at how well you're doing and how you are living your life the way you want to. And like living the way, living life the way that we want to or when we want to maybe change the way that we're living and create change in our life, we kind of need to do different things and, and often doing these, these big different things and changing our past and heading in a different direction, changing our daily habits. They, it can be quite challenging. And, and this is why I guess so many people don't even start the change in the first place because the same is just so familiar. How have you been able to form new habits in your, in your daily life to create change? It has not been easy. I'm not here to tell you that uh, changing habits for me is in any way uh, easy. It's been a process. And I'm kind of a habit junkie right now, which means I've just been reading everything I can about how how to build habits, uh, how to break habits. Uh, before I tell you about my habits, I think it's really important to understand just how easy it is to reinforce a bad habit. And because I'm an English teacher, I have this really phenomenal metaphor I would really like to share. Um, so I can't remember where I read this, uh, but someone once described a habit as a well-tread path. It's easy to navigate. There's no overgrowth on the trail. The blazes are clearly marked on the trees. And when we habit, it's like trying to clear a trail with minimal equipment. So maybe you can bushwhack your way through with a machete, but really to clear the trail, you have to walk it over and over and over again until it's as clear as the first one. And if you're trying to replace a bad habit with a good one or clear a new trail, you have to avoid the old habit. So all the plant life grows over the path and the blazes on the trees fade away. So it's difficult to walk or really difficult to find. But it's so easy for our brain to want to shift us to that well-tread path, that easy path to walk. Um, so some people claim it's like 21 days to build a habit. I've seven to 66 days. And I think it really just depends on the trail you're on and the density of the forest where you're trying to create this new trail. Uh, so moving away from the trail metaphor, uh, what I'm trying to say is that starting a new habit or especially breaking an old habit is really difficult so I don't want anyone listening to be discouraged that I talk about my habits as if they were easy to cultivate because they really weren't and they still aren't necessarily easy to maintain. Um, but in my own life, uh, most of my habits revolve around mental health. I try to keep my habits pretty simple. Um, a few years ago, I was diagnosed with a mood disorder and that kind of shows up with a heavy dose of anxiety and depression. Um, so the habits I've built are around my mental health, and they have been huge game changers with that. Um, major ones are meditation, getting quality sleep, quality food, exercise. 
some habits were easier to form because I had this sense of accountability. And that's one tool. If it works for you, I would definitely use it. So my therapist was the first person to introduce me to meditation. And she didn't tell me directly, but I had this sense that she expected me to incorporate it into every day. So having that sense of accountability, it was much more likely to do it. So if that's something that works for you, that's a little, I guess, habit hack that you could incorporate is getting accountability. Um, other habits I built through education, which can be really helpful for people. So I am a research fiend in a lot of ways. So after I learned a lot about how important sleep was to your physical and your mental health, it was so much easier to put forth more effort toward building that habit, or really my evening routine around sleep. So just a couple of ideas, building accountability into your day, um, getting more education. So you have those moments where it's like, you know, I know way too much not to try this better habit or to replace the bad one. Right. I um, love that metaphor about the, the <laughs> path as well. Like just hearing you say that, I'm like, that's exactly it. And because even once you, you do something and you've slashed it with the, with the chainsaw or the sledgehammer and you've made that path and you're like, great, I can do this. It's so true. You need to keep on doing it for that habit to form. We're actually trying out. We, we, we sometimes do different things uh, each month. In February, we gave up alcohol. And, and when Inga suggested that, I, I made sure that we picked the shortest month. Um, and we're, <laughs> we're actually trying um, No Meat May coming up in May. So that's going to be an interesting one. A past guest who was a vegetarian um, kind of excited me about that, even though I'm a massive, um, I shouldn't say I'm a massive meat fan, but hey, I, <laughs> I, I eat meat in, in most meals. So it's, it's so true. And I think too, just giving things a go, like saying to yourself, you know what, I'm going to try this for a week or I'm going to try this for a month and, and see how it goes. And sometimes I find that it's those moments where I say, I can't do this. And then I, I give it a go and it's like, Hey, uh, maybe I can do this. Maybe this is the, mm -hmm. the best thing. And, you know, I, I get up very early now and I used to be a, a night owl, but I just started going, you know what, I'm going to get up at, I think it started off at like six o'clock in the morning and then it was five thirty, then it was five o'clock. And, and now I get up at quarter to five just so I can wake up in that four o'clock hour. Um, and that means I've got to go to bed, you know, early at night, you know, I've got to figure it out at the, at the other right. end, but you, you, it completely changes our lives you know, as you said, I think that habits, you know, they are what we do. They are that path that we walk. And if we can change our habits, we really do get to change our lives. One, one small little step at a time. But on that, um, on that nature analogy that you gave me for your habits, that's actually another thing that you and I have in common, our love of nature. And you actually have organized a 31 days nature challenge. Can you talk me through that one? Yeah, so I started this last year. I'm doing it again this year for I'm going to be spending at least 30 minutes outdoors. And that's pretty much the challenge is to spend at least 30 minutes a day outside in nature. Now, the only caveat is that you have to get your hands or your feet or your whole body <laughs> uh, touching nature in some way. So it doesn't count if you are just walking a concrete path through a park. You need to get your hands on nature in some way. Uh, but that's 
pretty much it. And if you um, want to share with the world, you know, we're using the hashtag 31 days of nature. Um, but otherwise, just get out there 30 minutes a day. And that's that's the whole challenge, which maybe doesn't sound like a challenge initially, but you're going to run into days where you're incredibly busy, or the weather's kind of crappy, depending on where you are, and it's going to become a challenge uh, quicker than you realize. And has nature always been a big part of your life? Like we spoke about you know, the, the hills of Georgia before, and that's a place where you, you'd like to spend more of your time. But has, has nature been a, a big driving force in your life? It has. And, you know, technically, I'm part of the millennial generation, which I try to exclude myself from that sometimes. But I was at least fortunate, fortunate enough to grow up for a time without the internet or without a home computer, without a cell phone, without uh, wireless everything. So I would just play outside, right, until my mom would stand on the porch. She would whistle with her two fingers, and that's how I knew I needed to come inside. Um, so there was a way to exist without technology. Um, I was always climbing trees, getting my hands dirty. And this did carry into my adult life, but there was a point where I just felt like I lost touch with nature. So being the second year I'm doing this challenge, um, I am definitely more connected with nature over the last year than I had been before. Uh, but last year, I just felt too enclosed. I felt kind of sterilized, like in these artificial environments that we've created. So my initial reason was to restore that connection to nature that I had felt I had lost touch with. And what do you think is some of the big things that you've you've learned from nature, or, or like how is it how has it really changed your life in a way? Being in nature just gives me this deeper connection with the larger world around me. Um, when I'm out there, I feel more grounded and more at peace. And of course, being calm and at peace is really important when you have um, issues with uh, kind of severe mood swings. So being out there has really been a game changer for mental health in keeping me more calm, more stable. Um, and I come out of a hike or a camping trip feeling more curious and more inquisitive, more creative. So it really just drives all of these kind of uh, psychological benefits for me. Mm. Um, that's the really biggest part of nature for me. Yeah, we're having this conversation on a, on a Sunday and it's Sunday night here. And actually today, uh, Inga, Andy and I and one of Andy's little friends, we went for a bushwalk or a hike to Mount Sugarloaf, which is the, the tallest mountain in our area here and I'd, I'd actually never been there I'm originally from Sydney but um we went up there today and and seeing the the little girls on the top of the mountain at the lookout and just looking out and just seeing this vast land and then you're this small little human on top of the mountain it really does bring so much into perspective and you talk you, you know going back to you know what do you value and things like that it's those moments, that moment, it didn't cost us a cent, it cost us like a picnic, but it was so valuable and, and I could just see the girls pausing and looking out over the, over the ranges and it was just, it was really beautiful to see and, and you know, for me, I find in nature, whether it's at the beach or I'm skiing or, or going for a walk, it really just kind of, it just dissolves so many of my worries, it's, it's beautiful. But another thing that you are a fan of are the micro-adventures. 
And I must admit that I had never heard of this term until discovering your work, but I absolutely love it. Can you please describe for everybody what a micro-adventure is? Yeah, so this uh, term was coined by this guy. His name is Alistair Humphreys, and he is just this adventure junkie. Right, he's well known for um, biking around the world. It took him like four years and three months to cycle around the, the planet. Um, he, he's rode a boat across the English Channel. You know, he's gone on all these adventures. But in 2011, he was named uh, National Geographic's Adventurer of the Year. It wasn't for the four-year bike ride or the, the trek across the English Channel. It was for taking an entire year of micro-adventures. So... He wanted to try to kind of remove the barriers that prevent people from, first of all, getting outside and believing that they can have an adventure with their nine to five lifestyle. If you're working 40 hours a week, and obviously we know that people are working much more than that. But the idea is that you can have this kind of short burst of adventure as long as you are mindful about it, go back from, to mindfulness, and you try to do it closer to home. So he calls micro-adventures uh, going outside, uh, staying outside overnight, and getting back up for work the next morning, right? So it's a short burst of adventure in a short period of time. Um, it sounds a little complicated, right? You, but you could just pitch a tent in your backyard. You could camp at a local park. And what I love about his idea of micro-adventures is he flips this 9-to-5 lifestyle on its head. So, yes, you have to be at work for 9-to-5, and that's just the parameters I'm using for this example. But the idea is you have to be at work for this period of time. So if you're at work from 9-to-5, well, what are you doing with your 5-to-9? And that's where you can try to fit in as much adventure as possible rather than putting up these artificial barriers that prevent people from getting outside or really experiencing these great moments. And I 100% agree with that. Like, I, I often say that time is the true currency, and I really believe in that. And and a lot of people will say, oh, but, you know, I, I work the nine to five. And I'm like, cool, you got to work for eight hours. you got to sleep for eight hours. What are you doing for the other eight hours? And yeah. I think we, we let that other eight hours just disintegrate and bleed into the rest of life. And we sit on the couch or we flick through our phones or we – go shopping and buy things that we don't need. And we just, that other eight hours, that third of our life, that's the stuff, that's the time where, where we can really do things. And, and, and as you say here, do these kind of cool micro-adventures. But I'd love to know um, about some of the cool micro-adventures that you've been on yourself. Yeah, so for me, it's just kind of uh, finding places to camp. Um, we had spring break here for teachers uh, a couple of weeks ago. And you know, that's uh, about 10 days, right, where I can do whatever I want. I guess I could have gone on an adventure, but I did have a lot of little kind of house maintenance, spring cleaning kind of things I needed to do. But as one last hurrah for spring break, um, my friends and I went out to the forest and stayed the night. You know, we were there for less than 24 hours, I want to say. And it probably took us an equal amount of time to get things together and plan the event and the logistics of the whole thing. And some people might consider that a waste of time um, to plan so much for such a short trip. And the forest, I'm lucky enough to have a national uh, forest about two miles from my front door. So that's where I've spent some of my micro adventures is in this forest. And most recently, that's where I was. Otherwise, it's just kind of local parks. Um, I have a lot of 
they feel like fantasies right now. Um, but I have a lot of kind of micro adventures on my to do list. And one big one, I, I would really love to go bike touring and to be able to bike from place to place and camp in between. That's how I would really love to incorporate some of these adventures into my life. That that would be super, super fun. Um, kind of being out in the elements, sleeping at nighttime, but then also moving through the elements day to day. It sounds like a, a great little trip. But I, um, I've got one final question for you, Audrey, and it is one that I ask all of my guests at the end of the podcast, and that's if you could please describe your perfect day. So I, I'm obviously a, a longtime listener of your, your podcast, Mike. So before I do that, I kind of want to give you kudos for something you said in a previous podcast. Um, whenever I listen to podcasts and I have a quote that's something that really resonates with me that I want to write down, I will pause that podcast until I come to like a safe place because I'm usually driving so I can write down a quote. Um, and I had no idea, Mike, that you were going to approach me to be to interview me for this podcast. But when you did, I remember this quote. So I pulled it up for today. Um, and you said at some point, um, you said, by knowing what my perfect day looks like, I know where to spend my attention. And every day I try to get every day I try to get a little bit right. So when I go to bed at night, I can smile knowing I touched perfection today. And that has been driving a lot of what I do in my day to day over the last few months, ever since I heard you say that. So first of all, thank you for that. Thank you. <laughs> so I, I just love that idea of even if we can't get it right all, all the time or we can't have our big adventures from the day to day because we have other obligations, we can still touch perfection. So I just really think that's a beautiful idea. So uh, my perfect day, I would wake up before sunrise. I would try to get out to some place in nature, possibly the forest, and I would watch the sunrise either as I was walking or sitting somewhere quiet. Um, I would spend a good part of my morning um, hiking and meditating. I would try to meet up with friends at some point in the day and have some really powerful, good conversations. Um, I would try to be active at some point in the day with, I don't know, jogging or cycling or something. I just really like to be active at some point in my day. So that's part of my perfect day. Um, and then I would... No, have a nice dinner with friends. It's very simple to me to have a perfect day. Just finding a little bit of nature, finding a little bit of quiet, of stillness, um, finding good friends, conversation, and good food, and I, I'm a pretty happy person. It sounds pretty happy to me. It really does. So, like, on that note, then, like, why do we complicate things? And I know, <laughs> I know that's a really big question, but you know, and I've said it before with this and, and, and it is the, one of the reasons why I asked this question. Cause I, for me, when we answer the question, what's our perfect day, what we're actually talking about are our values. These are the things that we, yeah. we hold dear to our heart. And so my thing is, is like, well, if often what we say our values are, is really different to what our actions are. And I'm not saying yourself here, Audrey, but just people in general. And, and I, I know that for, for myself as well. Like, I, I'm like, why haven't I achieved my perfect day here? Okay, cool. Well, my actions aren't aligning up with, with my values. And that's why I get so happy when I can high five myself when I've touched a little bit of perfection today, because sometimes things are taken out of, um, out of my control. But why, do, why do we complicate our days so much? 
I think it's just so easy to fall into that trap of mindlessness that we were talking about earlier of letting too many things creep into our day and we're not fighting for our perfect day nearly as much as I think we should. Um, so I think that's part of it is that you got to fight for what you truly value. Um, but obviously if you don't know, if you're not sure what you value, then it, you have to take a step back and really distill down what's most important to you. So then you can rearrange your life to touch a little bit more perfection each day. Mm. Well said, well said. <laughs> <laughs> but Audrey, I, I just want to say thank you so much for, for coming on, on today and, and having a good chat. And, and this is the first chat that we've had. And, and I don't think it's going to be the last because I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this one. And the way that you articulate things is, is really beautiful. And thank you so much for going deep on the story with your father and, um, and also some of those great tips about minimalism and, and also nature and, and the habits and everything like that. But if people do want to reach out to you and, and if they've got any questions or if they want to follow your journey, what's the best way for them to do that? So my website is AudreyWanders.com, uh, and I'm the same uh, username at Instagram and Twitter is at AudreyWanders. So the best way is to get in touch either through my blog or through any social media. That'd be great. Too easy, and I will make sure that all those links are in the web uh all those links are in the show notes at liveimmediately.com and we'll also have some links to the 31-day challenge which is happening in May, so just a, a few days away. But is there anything that I've left out or anything that you'd like to say before we uh, say our goodbyes? I don't think we've left anything out, but I do want to kind of reiterate that you need to figure out what's meaningful for you so you can really live your beliefs and I guess what you say is live immediately. Perfect. Happy days. Well, thank you once again, Audrey, and thank you, everybody, for listening. And until next time, have fun and live immediately. That was another episode of the Live Immediately podcast with Mike Campbell. Thanks so much for listening. The original Live Immediately theme music is by the multi-talented Timothy McPhee. You can check out his music at firekites.bandcamp.com. If you enjoyed the show, had some fun, and maybe even learned something, then make sure you subscribe via iTunes. And while you're there, why not leave a rating and a review? You know it's going to make my day. Thanks for stopping by and giving me some of your time today. I'll catch you on the next episode. And until then, have fun and live immediately.